Florida Matters is supported by WUSF members just like you. Your donation of $5 or $25 will help ensure public radio thrives. And thanks to Candy Olson, an additional $50 will be added to your donation. Visit WUSF.org match to maximize your gift today. This is Florida Matters. I'm Matthew Petty. Climate change is accelerating sea level rise. It's a big threat to the Tampa Bay region and the nearly 5 million people who live here. According to some projections, high tides could be more than a foot and a half higher in St. Petersburg over the next 20 years, and more than three feet higher by 2070. Making the cities more resilient, for example by raising buildings or building defences against the rising sea, will cost billions of dollars. But experts warn that doing nothing will cost even more. On today's show, we're talking about the economic impact of climate change and sea level rise and how cities are planning to adapt. Later in the show, we'll hear from Maya Burke, Assistant Director of the Tampa Bay Estuary Program, about the impact of climate change on the region's environment. But first, we'll talk with two people leading resiliency efforts in the region. Sharon Wright is the Sustainability Manager for the City of St. Petersburg, and Whit Rima is the Sustainability and Resiliency Officer for the City of Tampa. Sharon, I want to start with you. You've been the sustainability manager at the city of St. Petersburg for, I believe, eight years now. I imagine that role has changed a little bit in that time. Could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. I have been um, actually in this role for seven years, and in May I will have been at the city for eight years. I spent my first year working on the downtown waterfront master plan, which was a headway into this topic as it is um, for resilience. But um I guess not a lot has changed as far as having just way too much dream work to do. Uh, We have so many exciting projects and initiatives, Um, but I also have tried to take a step back. I mean, it's not just the seven, eight years of the city uh, working on this in the decade before um, as well in, in other capacities and just trying to look at how to contribute to the overall to collective impact and evolve to see that what we that we are doing a lot as a city and as much as we can with current resources and that there are many individuals in our area doing a lot too and they have a significant collective impact but if the utilities and the state and the federal um, government as well as all over the planet do not do more St. Pete in its location might need to continually reassess the investments in people and adaptation versus mitigation and other work. Resilience definitely is currently getting the lion's share of a lot of our infrastructure upgrades, but it's more on my mind on how to continually balance those efforts. I wonder too, is there more of a focus now on resilience uh, than when you started, do you think? I would say yes, from when I started in the 2000s, maybe focusing in on sustainability and climate mitigation. But since we've been here, Realizing resilience was a a theme of our sustainability action plan, and the realizing resilience piece was one of the first pieces we did out of the gate, uh, bringing people from Boston, New Orleans, um, Miami, a bunch of people together to charrette with our community uh, to put together the framework for resilience. So I'm not sure uh, in in the most recent decade. Now, what you've been involved in this kind of work for a number of years now, but you're fairly new to the role your current role at the city of Tampa, I wonder what you think the biggest sustainability or resiliency challenge facing the city is? Well, you know, just to kind of 
play off of what Sharon said uh, and, and tie it into the, to, to the most pressing issue. You know, for a long time, a lot of the work focused on sustainability was really focused on, on carbon mitigation uh, and, and energy efficiency and transitioning to, to, to renewables. Uh, the reason that resilience has become such a big topic now is because we haven't done a good enough job making that transition quick enough. And uh, we are reaching dangerously close to a point of no return where resilience now has to play a part because we haven't done a good enough job on the on the carbon mitigation side. So we are now having to build infrastructure uh, to respond to climate impacts that unfortunately we've kind of just missed the mark on uh, in terms of achieving those global carbon reduction goals. So, so to answer your question, the challenge still continues to be in the city of Tampa and in the state of Florida that we, we haven't done enough as a state. And, and, and certainly, you know, we're, we're trying to do our best as a city to, to make that very quick transition to renewables. Um, and the state still lacks a, a renewable portfolio standard, which would be a legislatively set standard that the Public Service Utility Commission could enforce for our electric companies to start to change their mix of fuel um, that's being provided to their utility customers. So uh, still not having that leadership at the state level uh, helping us with the transition to renewable energy remains the, the, one of the greatest challenges here. Am I hearing you say that the cities are having to pick up a bit of the slack and do more of the work that should be coming down from either state or federal level? Well, I, I think, you know, to the state's credit and the, the federal government's credit, we're putting a lot of money into adaptation. Uh, the Resilient Florida program that, that the governor set up is, is a really welcomed program. Uh, and certainly the new infrastructure bill that, that, that uh, passed last year in Washington has some incredible resources to help us build climate ready infrastructure, resilient infrastructure. Um, and, but, but yes, cities are taking the lead. Mayors are taking the lead across the country uh, in a lot of areas to, to help us with energy efficiency and transitioning to, to renewables. Uh, that, that is falling a lot on, on kind of urban communities to, to take the lead. I want to ask you both about a recent report from the Tampa Bay Partnership. It's called Making the Economic Case for Resilience in Tampa Bay. And according to this report, the region is locked into several feet of sea level rise in the next few decades, and that could lead to nearly $3 billion in property value loss alone by 2045. And it's estimated that adaptation infrastructure will cut the impact to properties, tax income, and tourism by 80%. Sharon, I wonder if you could talk about some of the ways a city like St. Petersburg could make itself more resilient. Sure. Uh, we're addressing it from many different directions. Uh, we are making our, for example, in the last since 2017, we've spent 450 million dollars on our wastewater and stormwater infrastructure, and we continue to invest at that level in our infrastructure. We have passed design requirements for our own buildings to set an example to be more green and more resilient, uh, whether it's the sustainable and you know sort of energy side or the resilient side. 
Um, in addition, we've received some funding. We're doing some seawall assessments for our uh, city-owned seawalls, and that's going to result in some condition assessments, some design guidelines, and some options for how to address that that may be able to use on what is a much larger amount of seawalls that are not city-owned. We are also working on some pilots at the sort of hyper-local level, as they recently called it at the Resilience uh, Summit. But uh, neighborhood level resilience, it just it isn't just the infrastructure, it's our people. And if some of our in, uh, neighborhoods that have historically been, dis, been disinvested in, then we need everybody starting from the same place to be more resilient. And here we uh, sort of define resilience in St. Pete as thriving uh, during constantly changing conditions because we are experiencing economic times, uh, pandemic times, and I don't see that getting a lot of downtime from many of those. Um, and so we really want to focus on our people to be more resilient through community cohesion, through local solutions, and uh, shifting a lot of that power to the community to be more resilient themselves. So does that mean making sure that residents can stay in St. Pete if there's a disaster, for example? Because we have seen cases in other cities where there's been you know, massive environmental disasters, Hurricane Katrina, for example, and people have had to leave because they just couldn't stick around. So does kind of investing in the resiliency of the community sort of mean making sure that they can actually remain residents of the city if something bad were to happen? Well, I think the hope overall is that, yes, uh, people would either be able to remain or to come back. Uh, we definitely have evacuation zones where we do not want people to remain during an event, but we do want to ha diversify our economy, incentivize and drive the development into the higher areas or more dense areas. Things are going to look different in our neighborhoods so that we can live in the safer areas. And we have to, it's sort of an all hands on deck related to affordable housing, workforce readiness, racial equity. Those all are all ways you need to attack it so that people can uh, either thrive during everyday conditions and be able to come back and not, and not have an economy based just on restaurants or tourism, but all kinds of uh, wonderful industries that we're targeting and developing in the Tampa Bay area. Thinking about some of the neighborhoods that may be particularly vulnerable to sea level rise, for example, and I'm just referring back to the report again, uh, by 2070, an area like Bartlett Park would be uh, particularly vulnerable to, say, a 10-year flood event that would inundate that area. I wonder if you could explain a little bit where, where Bartlett Park is and, and why that particular neighborhood would be vulnerable to sea level rise more than other places? Bartlett Park neighborhood is just south of downtown, close. It's uh, the second neighborhood from the water, basically, uh, old southeast along Tampa Bay, and then cross over 4th Street near into the Bartlett Park area. That area, as well as many others that may not be right up against the water, as we know, it's not all coming in a wave from the bay or the ocean. Uh, we have our porous aquifers and many, many waterways and lakes or uh, man-made water retention areas where it's all rising up. So it's not just in a place like Bartlett Park or a place right on the water, but in that area, you have a lake there that has gotten pretty full uh, with nutrients and things. So an example of how we're addressing that is, um, you know, we're updating our entire stormwater master plan, but in this specific area, we already advanced a separate project to dredge that what to dredge that area so that there can be more storage so that we can increase the storage there and decrease like the hydraulic head and loss experienced as a stormwater flows downstream. So uh, we need to be taking watershed approaches. That's sort of a technical answer I gave before, but a watershed approach to our land use and development solutions and um, 
continue creating these this capacity to reduce the impact. That's about one and a half million dollars going there. And as far as what happens to those residents, it's it's not just affected by climate change. As I mentioned, you know, it's all of these challenges and solutions we're looking for related to housing and economy and, and many other things. Right. But it sounds quite complicated. Like it's not just a matter of the closer you are to the ocean, the more of a threat sea level rise may pose. There's a bunch of other hydrological and other factors at play there. There are, and quite complicated is a very short and, and accurate way of describing it. <laughs> well, what, let me turn back to you. Um, which areas of Tampa are most vulnerable to sea level rise? Well, we've commissioned a sea level rise report that, that has those details. And, and, and what's interesting about the messaging here is uh, you know, we don't see a lot of impacts from sea level rise in the city of Tampa until starting around 2050. And even at that point, it's mostly in public rights away. After that year, though, things start to get exponentially worse. But how do you message that to the community that for 30 years, we're probably going to be seeing uh, pretty minimal impacts. But after that, things change rapidly. I can tell you one of the things that we're doing is going neighborhood by neighborhood uh, where we do know those impacts are going to occur and starting to talk to the community about it and starting to understand how buildings might look different there, how infrastructure might look different there. Uh, just earlier this week, in fact, we announced um, a grant from the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation in the Palmetto Beach community, which is nestled between kind of Ybor City to the north and downtown to the west and our McKay Bay um, waste energy facility to the east. And then of course, to the south is, is, is the bay. And uh, we are um, gonna be working with that community to better understand what types of coastal resilience solutions are available for a neighborhood that, that for, for many years, uh, again, just like Sharon said, maybe had been underinvested in. Uh, and there's a seawall there, but there's also a living shoreline there. And these are neighborhoods that, that really probably could use a suite of coastal resilience options, whether it's living breakwaters or longshore bars, higher seawalls, uh, living shorelines. These are all um, opportunities to explore for, for really the entire region. I know St. Pete is, uh, and, and Pinellas County, we're, we're all looking at these solutions together. And I think that's what's great is that we can learn from each other and, and try things out and, and hopefully provide community protection and maybe even some multiple benefits in, in the form of, of marine habitat and bird migration when we put in mangroves and things like that. Sharon, you cited a couple of figures in terms of the cost of some of these mitigation measures that St. Petersburg is spending. And if you look at the big picture for the Tampa Bay region overall, according to this report, the infrastructure like berms, seawalls, raising buildings and other things is going to cost about $13 billion. And of course, that's an estimate. Um, how does a city like St. Petersburg pay for resiliency projects? Through several areas, of course, um, we have more recently done rate increases and uh, done a lot of public outreach to explain where those are coming from and what the increase will look like in the future. I don't have those exact numbers with me. Um, obviously, you know, some of it comes where we're looking a lot to the strategies for acquiring as much of the investment infrastructure investment and jobs act as we can and hope that there's even more from that area. Um, you know, on the Tampa side, 
we try to bake resilience into the, to, to existing projects. So, you know, I think uh, Sharon, you know, mentioned rate increases. You know, having separate funds for resilience is is, a, is good and important. But being able to bake in, um, you know, these types of resiliency measures into projects from the beginning, I think, is really the way to do it. Uh, and and that that should be true when you're building a new building. You just got to put solar on it now, and it's just part of the construction cost. Uh, when you're when you're building a new building, you're, you're going to elevate it, and that's not because it's the right thing to do. It's because that's what the building code says, and that's because that's what the insurance market is telling you you have to do if you want to get insured. So, I think so many of these things aren't aren't um, sweeteners. They're not uh, icing on the cakes. We've got to design and construct um, buildings and and use our built environment with sustainability and resilience uh, at the forefront. Sure, the cost of doing nothing is more than the cost of some of these projects. I want to just ask finally, uh, what do homeowners, renters, residents of the Tampa Bay region need to know? Like what decisions should, are they going to have to make in the coming years to make sure they are prepared for sea level rise and other climate change impacts? And what uh, if you could um, weigh in on that? Sure. So, you know, I think that homeowners have a lot of tools in the toolbox to help them, you know, first and foremost, while insurance, the insurance market in Florida right now is 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 dangerously close to being both unaffordable and potentially even uh, working towards disaster uh, and collapse. I think having insurance is really important, even if you're not in a flood zone. Uh, that's all the more reason to buy federal federally backed flood insurance because it'll be so cheap. The way to think about uh, whether your homeowner's policy covers flooding is if the water comes in from the roof, your homeowner's insurance will cover it. If the water comes in from your front door, you need to have either private flood insurance or federally backed flood insurance. So I think that's a really important thing that, that homeowners can do. Having an emergency savings account is really important. I know everyone loves having three days worth of food and water, and that's important. But having $500 to be able to pay an insurance premium or to be able to evacuate is just as important as having that food stash. And finally, I would add that um, knowing your emergency preparedness plan with your family, with your work, uh, those are all critical things that I think homeowners can do. And, and of course, making sure that your your storm drains are clear during um, the rainy season and then um, doing your part to, to be energy efficient. Those are all great things that we can do at the individual level. And Sharon, what do you think the takeaway is for St. Petersburg residents uh, looking at some of these challenges in the years to come? I think for the residents, a lot of the things that Whit just mentioned are are key and, and the fact that we're we're all working together to solve these challenges and work on these challenges, um, even through something like uh, the seawall project I mentioned, that includes a lot of public engagement. You know, it's going to be a constant conversation. I think that um, also we need to realize that some of our neighborhoods won't look the same. And in some of the areas where we need to increase density, where we have existing infrastructure, um, and be a little more open to some different types of styles and, and architecture. The architecture world is very interested in finding solutions to these. So things just might not look the same. And a quick example in, in one of our uh, areas by the water in Shore Acres, we just built a brand new recreation center. And the previous one was at your house level from, from olden times. And um, now it is really raised up in the neighborhood. And so you can see the contextual difference. Um, and by the way, the art there 
is a sea level rise education piece. And so in that way, we hope to help our residents consider how things might look and things we might need to do to solve the issues. Right. And I guess some of these public buildings are going to be places where people might need to go in an emergency too, right? So there's an extra incentive to make sure they're, they're resilient to whatever's coming down the pike. Yes. In this particular facility, they will not because this is an evacuation zone, but it may be a great place for recovery and backup electric generation and things like that. Well, I've been speaking with Sharon Wright. She is the sustainability manager for the city of St. Petersburg. Sharon, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thanks for the interest and happy Earth Day month, everyone. And Whit Rima, sustainability and resiliency officer for the city of Tampa. Whit, thank you as well. Glad, happy to be here. You're listening to Florida Matters. This week, we're talking about sea level rise and its impact on the Tampa Bay region. Our conversation continues in just a moment. Welcome back to Florida Matters, I'm Matthew Petty. Tampa Bay is seen as a model for environmental restoration even as the region's population has grown. But climate change is putting more stress on the waterways and sea level rise adds an extra challenge. To break this down, I talk with Maya Burke. Let's talk a little bit about the work that's already been done to restore the old Tampa Bay. It's seen as a success story. So, Maya, I'm wondering, what are the takeaways from your point of view from the work that's been done to improve the water quality in old Tampa Bay? Well, old Tampa Bay is where water quality is uh, really still struggling. But the rest of Tampa Bay is really that model for success that you're referencing. And from our perspective, there's a lot of really great lessons learned from how the Tampa Bay region has managed nitrogen pollution that can be translated and applied to how we tackle the effects of climate change, too. What do you think, then, building on that, what are the biggest threats to the estuary now and how does climate change factor into some of those threats? Well, cultural eutrophication or adding too many nutrients to our waterways is still the primary threat to Tampa Bay. And that's followed pretty closely by, frankly, development and the practices that we put in place. You know, as our population has continued to grow, we've taken up more of the landscape. And sometimes that comes at the expense of things like the pine flatwoods and the mangrove forests. And really, we have to figure out a way to maintain a balance that's healthy for us and healthy for our estuary, because those are the things that sort of give us opportunities to relax and enjoy and protect our mental health, have fun, feed our families, make a living. So those, I think those threats are, are us, but that means that there's a lot of opportunities and we have the opportunity to control or at least help play a role in the fate of our future. When you think about some of the specifics to there's red tide, there's the change in water temperature, could you talk a little bit about how some of those things have a measurable impact on the health of the water and the overall environment? Well, red tide and other harmful algae blooms are really hard because they make our bay unpleasant to be around. They take a toll on the fish and the wildlife uh, that live in the bay. 
they're also not great for our human health. You know, those those um, algae blooms can produce toxins that are either airborne or transmitted up through the food chain if we eat uh, shellfish or fish that have been contaminated. So the, so these are these are problems and challenges. But algae also does things like it makes the water darker, and so it makes it harder for the sunlight to reach from the bay's surface all the way down to the bay bottom. And when there's not enough light, then we can't support plants. And for us in Tampa Bay, seagrass is a really important plant. And these harmful algae blooms basically make it harder for seagrass to grow. And when we lose seagrasses, not only do we sort of lose that foundation for a healthy bay, the things that provide the nursery grounds for all the juvenile fish, these blue carbon habitats, marshes, mangroves, seagrasses, they store carbon. And so when we lose our seagrasses, we're also releasing all of that carbon back into the environment. And we're then adversely contributing to climate change as well. Maya, if we think about some of the issues that are going to threaten Tampa Bay as sea level rises, what are some of the adaptive things that we could do that could help? Well, I think a big thing is some of the work that needs to be done is sort of where the where the bay meets people along the shorelines. And so one of the things that we invest in at the Tampa Bay Estuary Program is living shorelines. What I mean is a sort of softer nature-based approach to the shoreline. So rather than just a hardened seawall where the water meets the land, we're talking about things like incorporating oyster reefs, marsh grasses, and sometimes mangroves, sometimes not. You know, there's a lot of different techniques that we can do to really give more space that allows not only habitats to migrate over time, because we know that they could get pinched out if we don't provide that space, but it also allows these habitats to provide sort of utilitarian service for us as people, because things like oysters, seagrasses, mangroves, marshes, they all attenuate waves, they slow down wave action, they protect us from flooding. And like I mentioned before, they also are really effective at storing things like carbon. And so that makes them really the workhorses of climate change, mitigating and offsetting some of the other impacts that we as humans have in our day-to-day lives. So when it comes to things like mangroves, oyster beds, and the living shoreline that you're talking about, and then also things like seawalls, berms, and other engineering solutions. It's not just either or, it's a case of both and, or you you need to figure out a way to uh, tackle both approaches to to sea level rise? It's 100% yes and. I always kind of joke that that's that's what being an estuary manager is about. It's kind of like improv. We need to to tackle these things from all angles. So we've also done some, some work looking at, for example, our sewer systems and how our sewer systems are vulnerable to the effects of sea level rise. And um, we know that as the water levels get higher, they tend to back up these systems. And then we have an intermingling of our wastewater and our stormwater systems that can overwhelm our sewer, our wastewater treatment plants and result in things like uh, sanitary sewer overflows, wastewater overflows into our bay, which nobody wants. So we definitely need engineering solutions to tackle problems like that. But we can't lose sight of all of the benefits that things like the natural habitats that are already present out here provide for us. Finally, what do you think people in the region need to be thinking about as climate change and sea level rise start to have more of a obvious impact on the waterways around the region? Well, I think 
think it's time to get real about some harder conversations. You know, for a long time in the state that we we have shied away from talking about the root causes of climate change. And I think we're in a place where we can't really do that anymore. And I think that there's lots of room for reasonable people to disagree, but it's important to begin to hash out what those policy solutions might be like. And I think that there are a lot of opportunities for realizing co-benefits to tackling things like greenhouse gas emissions. You know, for one thing, uh, automobile exhaust is one of the major sources of nitrogen pollution to our bay. So if we had a more resilient transportation system, not only would we be helping tackle greenhouse gas emissions, but we're also helping the nitrogen loading to the bay. And in in effect, then we're helping seagrasses uh, have better water quality and all of the fishing that we rely on to for fun, to feed our families and for our businesses. You know, those things are win-wins. They also have benefits for human health. So I really do think that we can't continue to ignore the greenhouse gas part of the equation, um, but I do think that there are things that we can all figure out together and agree on. And Tampa Bay has been an example of how you know, people from both sides of the aisle can recognize that we value clean water, we value a healthy bay, and we'll figure out something that's palatable to us all in order to get there. Well, Maya Burke is the Assistant Director of the Tampa Bay Estuary Program. Thanks so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you. And that's Florida Matters for this week. Denora Prevost is our producer. I'm Matthew Petty. Thanks for listening.